Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken for February 3rd, 2011. Yep. I always start it with yep and then I just say the episode name, so let me try something different. Okay. That is correct, sir. Episode 30. How's that? <laughs> Little Ed McManish. Yeah. So, episode 30, we're only going to do two issues this week. And they're both number nine, so we're doing Marvel. Number nine, yep. number nine, number nine, number nine. That's my impression of uh, the Beatles' White Album. There's uh, a part just like that. Go ahead. Okay. Well, it was top-notch. <laughs> it was. It was a very cool album. It was just a little drug-induced back then. Yeah. All right, we're going to do Star Trek number nine uh, by Marvel, which came out in December of 1980. And then we're going to do the ninth comic strip called uh, The Savage Within, which came out April 26, 1981 to June, or I'm sorry, to July 21st, 1981. So different years, but they, they kind of tie in together. So uh, it's kind of fitting that we're doing them in the same episode. There you go. All right, so um, I'll take Marvel's uh, issue number nine, Star Trek number nine, uh, Experiment in Vengeance. All right. And, and uh, writer is Martin Pasco. The artists are Dave Cockrum and Frank Springer. Colors by Carl Gafford. Letterer is John Costanza. Editor Luis Jones, and editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. So, here's a synopsis. The cover shows a male and female Starfleet uh, members holding, their, holding hands but in great distress, as if they are falling to their deaths, deaths. Directly beneath their feet is the saucer section of the USS Endeavor, a pre-refit Constitution-class starship. The background is space, a ring of nine human heads surrounding them, jeering with, sharp, with a... Uh, sharp halo around their heads, accentuating the anger that they appear to be directing at the Starfleet personnel. Capitalized in blocky text at the bottom of the cover reads, Trapped in a Web of Ghostly Vengeance. Now, later, later we're going to find out that it's, it's, I think it's meant to be Kirk and this uh, female crew member. Well, but actually, you didn't read the top part. It says, Kirk, Spock, the Enterprise, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And then trapped in the web of ghostly vengeance. Well, okay, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's 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 what the the caption is. You only read half the caption. Well, sorry to interrupt. Okay, you. that's cool. Thanks, Donovan. But anyway, it looks like it is. I mean, even though it doesn't look anything like Kirk, except for the uniform. Um, well, we'll see you later. Uh, I assume it's Kirk. Uh, okay. So okay. So the opening page presents a full page drawing of the Enterprise closing in on another starship that is upside down and on an angle to the approaching Enterprise. 
The square text boxes hold the captain's log, telling that they are en route to Starbase 8 for R&R when they come upon the starship Endeavor. She is adrift uh, one-half parsec from her last known position. She has been listed as missing for 22 years. On the bridge, Spock is conducting a full sensor sweep. Kirk wants to solve the mystery of the Endeavor's disappearance once and for all. Zoologist Karen Hester Jones enters the bridge and reports to Kirk. She is, of course, hot and seems to have some history with Kirk, judging by his awkward conversation with her. She appears to be married, now uh, given the hyphenation of her last name. Suddenly, the Endeavor quickly pivots towards the Enterprise and races towards her, firing phasers. The shields protect the Enterprise. Spock reports that no life form exists on the Endeavor. When the Endeavor comes around for another pass, the Enterprise fires two photon torpedoes at her that bring down her shields and disables her impulse engines. An away team assembles in spacesuits and beams over to the Endeavor only to find skeletons and uniforms on the bridge. Mr. Amar, a a Randarite technician, calls Kirk's attention to a jagged hole in the bridge's wall made by a phaser set to kill. McCoy states the crew have been dead for 20 years, then asks the logical question, who was flying the ship when it attacked? Seemingly unnoticed by the rest of the away team, the Endorian biophysicist Theris starts to glow, and a black cloud seems to penetrate his helmet. Mr. Amar reports that the ship's log seems to say that the crew killed themselves off. Before Amar can complete his report, Theris advances on him with a phaser and disintegrates him. Kirk fires his phaser, set to heavy stun, at Theris. Though he is knocked back, he is not knocked out. When his phaser attack failed, Kirk leapt at Theris, hoping to take him down, but instead ends up being thrown over Theris's head into a bulkhead. Meanwhile, McCoy called for Spock and Sulu to get to the bridge right away. He also prepares a hypo, loaded with a sedative, but before he can use it, Theris knocks it out of his hand. Spock enters the bridge and grabs Theris from behind. Temporarily immobilized by Spock's superior Vulcan strength, McCoy is able to shoot Theris up with a sedative, and as they all beam back, as they all beam back to the Enterprise. On the transporter pad, the team makes their way to sickbay with the unconscious Theris. Again, no one seems to notice the gaseous entity still floating above the transporter pad. It is drawn very clearly in the comic, but since no one seems to see it in the story, I assume it's uh, invisible in some way to the crew. As they depart the area, Kirk notices the mysterious and complete shutdown of the Endeavor after they beamed back to the Enterprise. Kirk correctly notes that this is significant, but he does not know why. In a total soap opera scene, the lovely Lieutenant Karen Hester Jones has a conversation with Kirk concerning the awkwardness of them being on the same ship given their past romance. The lieutenant still has a big crush on Captain Tight Pants, but though Kirk says he cares for her a great deal, they can't rekindle their relationship. In a conference room, the main characters, plus Lieutenant Hester Jones, discuss the contents of the Endeavor's logs and their implications. The Endeavor responded to a distress call from Janet Hester on the planetoid Mycena, 
which is a moon of a planet called Theta Ariadne 2. It's hard to believe uh, it's hard to believe the coincidence, but Lieutenant Hester, uh, Hester Jones states that her grandmother's name was Janet Hester, but it could not be her since she, since she died in 2139 at the age of 36. McCoy states her identity was confirmed medically by the Endeavor crew and that no record of her whereabouts existed between 2139 and the day they found her on Mycena. Shortly after she was beamed to the Endeavor, crewmen started going berserk and killing people. The two security men that beamed up with her were the first, and they killed 27 people seemingly at random. They behaved like Theris, but back then six people went berserk on the Endeavor, where so far only one person had been affected this time around. They went on to report that eventually the berserkers killed enough people to take over the ship. A shuttle was missing, so some people might have gotten away on it. By Starfleet order, the Enterprise sets course for Mycena to get to the bottom of the Endeavor mystery. Kirk joins the landing party on the icy Mycenaean surface. The four-man team split up to enter two different cave entrances that meet three, cl- three kilometers below the surface, the icy, snowy surface. McCoy and Spock encounter an amazing and huge creature that attacks them and seems to be immune to phaser fire and tricorder scans. This seemingly unreal creature is all too real in its attack and drives them into the caves. The amazing properties of the creature are displayed as it is able to squeeze its huge form into the entrance of the cave. Meanwhile, Kirk and Sulu discover an icy human body, mostly covered with snow and ice. They also discover they cannot raise Bones and Spock via communicator. Back in the cave, Spock and McCoy continue deeper into the cave with the vicious creature on their tail. Luckily, Spock finds equipment in the cave that just so happens to drop the creature like a sack of potatoes when it is activated. Kirk and Sulu join them, and together they discover the equipment is ancient Mycenaean, but has been modified and augmented by Federation tech, including a transtator, which we find out is the basis for all Federation tech. Since there's no record of Federation of a Federation outpost here, they assume that Dr. Janice Hester is responsible for the introduction of Federation tech, including what appears to be an early transporter device. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, four people have gone violently berserk, including Uhura. The quadrothorazine shots are knocking them out, but more people seem to be, seem to contract it as time goes on. McCoy beams up to the Enterprise to help Chapel, and Lieutenant Hester Jones beams, beams down on Kirk's order. As Hester Jones beams down, a berserk crewman calls to her and says that he must stop her. Lieutenant Hester Jones proceeds to take samples of the creature and also confirms to Kirk that her great-grandmother was Dr. Hester that invented the Federation transporter technology. Spock confirms from the records in the cave that Dr. Hester and her team were continuing transporter experiments that the Federation discontinued. McCoy calls down to Kirk and reports that he thinks the berserkers are victims of some sort of possession. 
they are all chanting that the unity seeks Hester over and over again. The patients break out and all six of them rush to the transporter room where they beam down close to Lieutenant Hester's uh, location. They try to attack her, but Kirk forms a blockade of rock from the ceiling with his phaser and grabs the lieutenant as they run for the main cavern where Spock is ready to activate the alien defensive shield that previously saved them from the huge snow creature. The Unity entity leaves the six crewmen and comes after them in their incorporeal state. Using the defensive shield, Spock is able to capture the six incorporeal entities who tell them the story of how they were once Dr. Hester's team of researchers. One by one, they volunteered to go through Hester's transporter prototype. And then, they were unable to reassemble each of their bodies. Their brains continued on as electrical impulses floating in space when they finally came upon the Endeavor and entered the ship. Once they came together as one entity they called the Unity, the Endeavor, uh, fa- uh, the Endeavor, the Endeavor crew found uh, and arrested Dr. Hester. But in the meantime, the Unity discovered they could take over the crewmen. Dr. Hester stole a shuttlecraft and escaped while the Unity started their bloody unta- undertaking to kill the crew and take the Endeavor. When the Enterprise came on the scene, the Unity attacked out of self-preservation until they could find Dr. Hester and get their revenge. Kirk tells them Lieutenant Hester is not Dr. Hester, but he can give them Dr. Hester. Kirk tells Sulu to bring the frozen body of Dr. Hester into the room. When it arrives, Kirk tells Spock to turn off the force field. While the Unity races to the dead body of Dr. Hester, Kirk and Sulu throw their phasers, set to overload, into the room as they transport back to the ship. The room is destroyed with the Unity and Dr. Hester's body inside. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk and Spock discuss the irony of Dr. Hester crashing the shuttlecraft back on the planet she tried to escape from, and her assistants searching for her all those years and never finding her in the labs that they all worked in. Spock theorizes it was the Unity's hate they all felt for Dr. Hester that kept them alive in their incorporeal state. Lieutenant Hester Jones and Kirk reconcile their painful relationship, and she beams off the ship over Kirk and ready to get her back, life back on track. Kirk remains with his greatest love, the Enterprise. The end. She's quite shapely when she beams away. She definitely has the hourglass figure going on yes, there. Yes, she's very hippie. Very hippie. So this one was kind of a interesting one to try to synopsize and also to read. Synopsize. Yes. You really have to get this unity thing. Yeah. Which was that one was that was the hard pill to swallow in this one. And that's not the only one. There, there were uh, hard pills to swallow all over the place. <laughs> that was the one that I had the hardest pill to swallow. That that was really hard. I don't um, see why. I mean, these people were scientists that have been ripped. Their souls or their essence or whatever you want to call it has been ripped from their bodies to make them incorporeal. Yeah. And so, I mean, basically, instead of trying to fix that so that these people can either become living again or to, you know, 
somehow mm, keep yeah. them from living in this state forever. Kirk just throws them a bone and runs away. <laughs> um, throws them a blo- bone, blows them up, and runs away. Yeah, so, I mean, if these people really were, you know, somebody's family members that are spending eternity just floating around in space, I mean, he didn't do them any favors. And he didn't, I, but, you, but you also got to remember they killed the entire crew of the Endeavor. They did. And the Enterprise could have been next. And it was it was going to be, but it was. But again, yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. I don't see them as being. I mean, they're 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 the bad guys in the story, but to me, they didn't really seem all that bad because they've spent the last eighty something years, you know, without bodies floating in space because their their bodies were dematerialized and yep. never came back. So yep. I don't know. I just wish they would have. I wish they would have just said yes. The phasers as overload would have somehow destroyed them outright, so that they could move on. I guess I don't know. Yeah, to the next plane of existence, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that that would have been. Uh, yeah. 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 That that you're you're a compassionate man, Donovan. Compassionate <laughs> man. And then when so, they're ta- and then sometimes when they're talking, the artwork covers up the word balloons, which was kind of annoying. Did you notice yeah. that? Um, I know you noticed it. But... Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And it was inconsistent. It was like sometimes these little squiggly lines would, you know, be over the art, and sometimes it would be behind the art. I mean, uh, behind the word balloons. Right. It was just, I don't know. It seemed like they maybe slapped it together at the last minute. I don't know. Well, they certainly slapped a story together. In fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to give my top ten list of hard-to-swallow plot points in this comic. All right. Well, I'll be listening. Okay. Number 10. Lieutenant Hester Jones happened to be Dr. Hester's great-granddaughter. Hard to swallow. And I agree with you 100%. Okay. Hard-to-swallow plot point number 9. Lieutenant Hester just happened to come aboard the Enterprise just before they found the Endeavor. Number 8. Lieutenant Hester happened to have a disastrous relationship with the Kirkmeister. Hard to swallow uh, number number seven. Lieutenant Hester happened to join Starfleet and been assigned to the Enterprise. Number six. Dr. Hester's lab on Mycena happens to have been a renovated alien or happened to have a renovated alien defense shield that Spock happens to find, happens to figure out, and activate in time to incapacitate the deadly creature just as it's about to attack them. And the deadly creature just so happens to be phaser and tricorder proof. Now, of course, that last one could have been broken up into two, but I'm, 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 I'm giving you a double dose there. Number five, Dr. Hester happens to figure out how to steal a shuttlecraft to get off the ship she probably does not know at all. Number four, the test subject of the early transporter prototype happens to survive having their atoms dispersed into space. So how did that happen? Number three, Dr. Hester is able to pick the six dumbest people in the quadrant to volunteer to have their atoms spread around in an experimental contraption. And and just just to look at this, the sixth guy had to be really dumb. Number two, out of the six guys that beamed over to the Endeavor, 
the two guys that die or go directly insane happen to be aliens that we've never seen before. So they should they should have just worn red shirts. And number one, Kirk just happens to look like Jimmy Johnson in multiple panels. Hard to swallow items. All ten of them. Of course, Jimmy Johnson, former Dallas Cowboys coach. Right. Anyway, so that, there you go. Well, if you if you're gonna toss in number one uh, about the artwork of of Kirk, uh, uh-huh. I think you also need to throw in why is there a Vulcan aboard the Endeavor that looks just like Spock? When everybody <laughs> exactly. Goes crazy. Exactly. When we all know that Spock's supposed to be the first Vulcan in Starfleet, so there's no reason why the Endeavor would have a Vulcan. Exactly. But let's not bring that into the picture, because you know the TV show Enterprise also deals a little inconsistency. Well, no, they weren't part of Starfleet. They were just, uh, she was just a, an advisor. Uh, she's on the ship. I mean, right. Correct. She was still uh, part of Vulcan High Command or whatever. But, but even towards the end, when they wanted her to come off the ship, and she said, the heck with you, I'm staying. Did she still stay technically with the Vulcans? Yeah, I guess you're right, because they did start calling her Commander DePaul, and she wore a Federation-type uniform. Eventually. Yeah. I guess it was a Starfleet anyway. uniform, not a Federation ship. But you're right. You're right. Uh, I don't know. You saw, you saw that show more than me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's fine. It's just suspended disbelief. I mean, some stories, some movies, some, some comic strips, uh, comic books ask you to do a lot more uh, suspended disbelief uh, than others. And if you can manage to have a good, entertaining story, uh, thought-provoking, and not every five seconds asking the uh, the audience to just, you know, go easy on the disbelief, uh, then you got a good story. And if you need these many points of uh, discontinuity, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh and also, I would say the pacing of the story at times seemed odd, because uh, if you look at, like, page uh, – these aren't numbered. Uh, it's the page where McCoy has the all the affected crew members tied up in the bed, and they're all saying, saying we seek Hester, we seek Hester, right. the unity seeks Hester. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's six panels on this page all together. The first panel shows Kirk talking to McCoy. The second panel, which is on the top row, uh, has McCoy there in, in sick bay talking to Kirk. The next panel has them still talking. And then the third panel says in sick bay, and it shows McCoy, and he's beat the crap, his shirt's all ripped, and he's like, Jim, the possessed crew members have escaped. <laughs> and you're just like, what? He's still talking to you. <laughs> it doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't say a lot of time pass. It's just like he's talking to him in panel three. In panel four, it's like a lot of time has passed. McCoy has got his ass kicked. Yep. And everybody's escaped. It was just like I, I even stopped. I was like, what? You're you're still talking to him. What happened? <laughs> and, I mean, McCoy is whooped up. I mean, he has yep. black eyes. Black eyes. It's like he's bleeding out of the mouth and eyeball, it looks like. I mean, he's tore up. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it's just that kind of stuff. The pacing in this book was just really off that I could never really figure out how much time has really passed since the the panel or the page before. Right. Yep. So, anyways, that's just me 
maybe maybe I haven't read enough comic books to uh, get that oh. a lot of time has passed, but uh, I think I have. I think you have. I think you've read quite a few. Anyways. But no, I get I get all your, your top ten, and I, I don't really have anything to say about that because I think you're spot on. <sighs> yeah. And I didn't really understand why the hell a zoologist would be needed on the bridge <laughs> when the Endeavor is being scanned for the very first time. I mean, the ship's been gone for 22 years. Yeah, this is a good time for a zoologist to come over here and tell Kirk that she just you know, categorized these worms or something. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a good time to come up to the bridge. I mean, and it's just exposition. Okay, we have to introduce her. So here she is on the bridge at the exact same time we're about to scan the uh, lost ship Endeavor. Exactly. And that, that was just total total coincidence. It just, yeah. just happened. just happened. And it just happened to be our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Exactly. I thought it was a duh moment in the opening uh, page where, where they're, they're approaching the Endeavor and Kirk tells Sulu to uh, use impulse power only. Well, yeah... I mean, you're not going to use a warp drive when when you have visual sighting of the ship. I mean, you'd be parsecs away and if you engage that. Anyway, right. uh, I guess you could use thrusters and things, but come on. When you're in solar system, you, you, you use the uh, the impulse engines. Yeah, and uh, that first page when they when they see the Endeavor and it's kind of back upside down <laughs> and floating. I mean, I know that they're trying to show that it's adrift and that's why it's upside down. Right, but it's space. it is space, <laughs> exactly. That that was the when even as a little kid when I was watching Star Trek Two, I could never understand why the Reliant and the Enterprise were always on the same level, or so right. that they were both upright the same way. And right. then they even mentioned that you know Kirk Kirk's able to trick Khan by going lower and then over. Uh-huh. And that's going to somehow trick him. And, and even as a kid, I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because <laughs> you're in a you have a 360 degree radius. Yeah. I mean, why would why did they not meet each other? And Kirk's you know right side up, and Khan is upside down. I mean, it was just like that doesn't make. I mean, yeah, I guess it looks better when they're both facing the same way, but in space, I th- I would think that they're just kind of everywhere. Exactly, exactly, and uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and and because he's not a spacefaring guy as much, Khan, uh, who knows how much spacefaring experience he has, except when they took off on that uh, on the Botany Bay. Well, he would have uh, none because he was asleep when they got launched off, and ah, there was there wasn't okay, a so, lot of interstellar travel in the 1990s that I recall. No, probably not much. So, um. And they wouldn't have gotten much when they got to the uh, the planet. So, uh, but the main, I mean, they they did make a good point about uh, basically Khan's not used to space, right? And three dimension out, uh, three dimensional thinking and whatever. But it's like uh, that's a good point. In Star Trek, period. Every time you have an episode, in general, everybody's coming up on each other real slow on the same plane, yep. and it really doesn't need to be that way. Nope. Unless you're docking with one another, but... Well, that's almost never happening in these stories. Right. But yes. So anyways, but the artwork with the ships, you know, with the Endeavor attacking the Enterprise, I thought was really good. I really liked the uh, the artwork of a, a unrefitted Constitution class attacking the Enterprise. Right. 
So I thought they did a good job there. I thought the ship artwork overall was really good, whereas mm-hmm. I'm not overly thrilled with the the people <laughs> with the people. Yeah. Yeah, they're not very. Uh, they're not very. Eh, in most cases, they're not very accurate. But you know, th- there's a few panels where it's okay. Sometimes they got people right, but they almost never got Kirk right. No, Norm McCoy. I mean, Spock and Sulu maybe were the closest ones. I thought. Yeah. Now. The reason why I brought up that little caption at the beginning uh, on the mm-hmm. cover where it says Kirk Spock the Enterprise trapped in a web of ghostly vengeance. Mm-hmm. I just wanted I, I thought that was funny cuz there's three people there's three things on the ship are, are on the cover with the exception of the floating heads. There's a man, a woman and the endeavor. Right. So I'm assuming that's Kirk. The woman is definitely not Spock and that ship is definitely not the Enterprise. So it's like Correct. <laughs> I just thought it was funny that you actually call out three things by name, which maybe one of them is on the cover. I don't know. I just well, I, and I think it's also interesting because, I mean, basically they're really calling out the top three, well, characters in Star Trek. And interesting that the Enterprise gets top billing over McCoy. But really, that's probably, that's probably okay. Because the Enterprise is pretty stinking important in the Star Trek universe. All right. So, and on the cover, Hester is blonde, and no, in the rest of the story, she's redheaded, along with yeah, her she, grandmother too. Yeah, she doesn't look. I mean, the, the the woman on the cover does not look like Hester, although uh, she is hippie. The one on the cover too. Well, all the all the women on this are hippie, kind of the cartoony hippie, where you know, like, uh, like they the way they draw them and like. Bugs Bunny cartoons and Animaniacs and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, they all look like they could uh, bear bear a lot of children. <laughs> so what did you think about this Kirk-Hester three-year relationship thing? Um, you know, I think they could have done this story and not had that at all. And just said that they had a relationship and not actually well, give a specific or, time frame? Or skip the relationship. I mean, <laughs> She could have just been a, a, a crewman yeah, without having to have the whole complication uh, of the relationship. But I will say that, especially when Kirk is dealing with her, he was Mr. Heartbreaker there. And then, uh, you know, it's basically so, hey, look, you know, <laughs> let's be professional here because it ain't going to go any further. Sorry everything happened, but, you know. Well, yeah, at first he's all, like, trying to be sweet and maybe even trying to romance her again. And then... Then all of a sudden he just turns and he's just like, you know, you not getting over me is your problem. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's like, if you can't do your job, I'll find someone who can. And then yeah, he's, he's pretty. Uh... But at first he is trying to be sweet. He's like. Well, yeah, at first, but then he's a jerk. Yeah, he's and, a then it, and, then, and then at the end, it's like, I care too much. That's part of the problem. It's like, what? Ah, what? Ah, okay. That's supposed to explain your your behavior? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Come on, he's he's Captain Tight Pants. He's gonna he, he gets with the ladies, you know. Yeah. Can't be tied down. I, I was wondering if this story was supposed to be alluding to one of the lines that Doctor Phillips has, and where no man has gone before, about Kurt ending a, a three year or ending a relationship with some blonde or something like that. I mean, this this woman's obviously not blonde, but I think in that mo- in that ep- that episode, they kind of act like Kirk is, you know, coming out of a long relationship to take over the Enterprise kind of thing. 
which is never, oh, ever, yeah. ever mentioned again. Hmm. But I was wondering if maybe that was where they were going with this, that maybe she was that woman that he left to become the captain of the Enterprise. Hmm. But, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm just uh, reaching there. a lot of conjecture out there. Right. But I mean, in a lot of times, the, the, the scripts end up having more of a backstory than you ever are let in on. Right. And most people, now that Star Trek II came out, uh, believe that the woman that he that Phillips was talking about was uh, Karen Marcus. Ah. Hmm. Which, that doesn't really make sense, because David hmm. would be, what, 11 or 12 years old, not 25. So... I don't know. It's just a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. Another thing I wanted to mention is, you know, I'm okay with Dr. McCoy all the time shooting people with the hypo spray through their through their unsanitary uniforms. But giving a shot through a spacesuit, I don't know. That, that was a little that, – that kind of made me pause. Yeah. Well, don't they – I know that in Enterprise, they they make mention that, or at least I think it was Enterprise, that the suits were made so that there would be an access point to have uh, injections while you're still wearing it. Okay. But uh, I'll have to go back and look at the picture, but does he just, like, <laughs> shove it in the neck like he normally does? Uh, I'm, go I'm looking right now. No. Um, oh no! It's in no, his he arm. does it in the arm. Does it in the arm. Yeah, on page six. So that yep. page is actually numbered. So that one, yeah. So I think in Enterprise, that's where they said that there was a little access point to get injections while you're wearing your suit. Uh, oh, wow. So I don't know if they had that in mind or or what, but I don't know. But they would. I mean, I think they would need something like that, even though it isn't obvious that he's shooting through an access point. Right. I mean, these things have to be uh, thick enough to uh, hold air in and uh, the icy chill of space out. But eh. yeah. Plus, I never. I mean, how does the hypo spray even work? I mean, I don't it know. Doesn't puncture I mean, the even skin, through a shirt, really. it doesn't seem to. Uh, and and they're always shooting through uh, uniforms and stuff. Right. And they and I never saw Doctor Crusher dab it with alcohol first. <laughs> Indeed. So, it's another piece of high tech that we're not meant to understand. Good point. What What the hell's a trans tater? Nah. <laughs> I I think they're trying to just say it's something like a trans, you know, it's something like a, a a transistor. But since it's incredibly advanced future tech, uh, we can't say transistor. We need to say something else like transistor. Ah, trans trans tater, trans tater, or whatever they they called it. Yeah, trans tater. The basis of all Federation technology. There you go. There you go. I thought the ice, icy scene with the monster on Mycena. Yeah. Uh, we, we mentioned this before that we started recording, but uh, that kind of looked like maybe an inspiration for the uh, a very similar scene in Star Trek Eleven. Yeah, yeah, being chased by a giant monster with a bunch of tentacles kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, obviously, this this guy doesn't look anything like that one. And in fact, I think this this thing looks better than than the one in the movie. Oh, you do? Uh, yeah. I I'll be honest. That, I agree that, that. that that scene in the movie is probably my least favorite of the whole of the whole film. Oh, okay. Just being chased by the monster, and then well, that monster getting eaten by a bigger monster, and then getting chased. Yeah, the more wolf by thing. It. Yeah, the wolf thing at first, and then the big 
whatchamacallit monster. Yeah. In the second one. Yeah, a little too much of Star Wars Episode One, which had a similar scene when they're in the little Gungan submarine. They get chased by a fish, and then that fish got eaten by a bigger oh, fish. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But, they, but didn't as have, we see, they didn't have Spock with a torch later on to somehow ward it off. Exactly. So at least this one had a unknown alien <laughs> contraption. <laughs> that Spock immediately understands how to use and that it's somehow going to stop the monster. So you would have liked it better if he would have just lit a torch and then the monster runs off? <laughs> Not necessarily. Both are hard to swallow. <laughs> yeah. But no, I thought this. I thought the monster looked pretty cool. I didn't cool. like that it just died and was somehow Federation proof. <laughs> that was ridiculous. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, okay, the phaser can't harm it, and you can't scan it with a with a tricorder. Oh my god! And, and by the way, the thing looks, a, especially in the front of it, it looks like a shrimp. So I don't know how impressive it is. I don't know why you're so impressed with it. I don't really see the shrimp. Talk about the face. I'm talking about where the eyes are and, and and the front of it. It looks like a crawdad or something. Huh. I guess yeah, I could see it. To me, it looked a little bit like the alien queen or something like that. The the head going back so far, I will agree with that. It, it is very uh, alien queenish. And it, I mean, it's kind of serpentine too because it doesn't have a back legs. It just has right. the forearms. I don't yeah, know. It's got f- forearms and a, and a snake's back end. Yeah, I, thought it, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting design. It is. It is. Back to your six guys. Go ahead and still jump into the transporter and and get dematerialized forever. One at a time. Right. Well, each time they thought they were getting it fixed. <laughs> you know, I would have had doubts at the first thing, period. But then after the first guy didn't come back, uh-oh, not this boy. Mm. Well, they didn't have any, uh, you know, Captain Archer bugles to uh, test it with, so they just... You were talking about the beagle? Yeah, what did I say, bugle? <laughs> you said bugle. <laughs> yeah, those little corn chips. No, beagle. <laughs> beagle, okay. Yeah, I remember how Scotty... Yep, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought it was great that they mentioned Archer. I did, too. I wish he would have actually had a cameo. That would be cool. Maybe in the next one. <laughs> anyway, so back back to this beaming thing. So the Federation banned human testing on beaming. And she and these six guys, you know, take it upon themselves. They escape from the Federation to this little planet to continue the testing. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of off, and nobody even hears about them until the Endeavor finds them. Yep. However... By the time they're found, the Federation is using beaming on a day-to-day basis with humans. So who continued her research in the Federation proper versus her little uh, testing on that on that planet? Don't know. But she is apparently known as the inventor of transporter technology. Yeah, she invented if it before not the, she ran if not the perfect, Yeah, if not the uh, perfected version. Yeah, so are we to assume that after the Federation banned human being, uh, beaming, well, that somebody else was able to continue the testing and, and perfected it? Yes, that, that's exactly what you would be led to believe. Because I think they actually said they they stopped, they banned testing until they could find out more about it. Right. Uh, okay. 
I don't know. I, I mean, hell yes. Weird. Human beaming? I mean, beam an amoeba or something. You know, a lower form life. How about mice? I don't know. Well, we obviously know that, that, that these statements here don't hold any water because in Star Trek Enterprise, they, they beam humans. I mean, even in Star Trek Enterprise, it's kind of exactly. a new thing, but that's supposed it... to be way before, 83 years before Kirk's time. Exactly. And speaking of that time thing, I mean, they're basically implying that this story must take place in 2214 because they say the Endeavor was lost in 2192 and that was 22 years ago, which 2214 would put it at like 40 years before Pike takes command of the Enterprise. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a nitpick because obviously they hadn't nailed down timelines yet until the next generation comes out. Right. Uh, but I just thought I would throw it out there that, you know, they actually make the effort of mentioning an actual date, uh, a date that we would understand. Uh, but unfortunately, that does not hold water anymore uh, due to the the uh, fixed timeline, which is kind of interesting that they didn't even bother to actually give it a, a – a real date until the next generation came out. I don't know. I found that interesting because usually that's the first thing science fiction movies do. <laughs> they give dates. Right. I mean, didn't you watch Lost in Space? That happened in what, 1997? 90-something. Yeah, we looked it up last week and I already forgot. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I knew it was in the 90s somewhere. 92, 97, 90-something. Yeah. So, anyways, Which that was... that didn't happen either, man. I'm getting really disappointed. Yeah, well, when 2001 I'm... A Space Odyssey, where's that? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I still have never seen that movie. You, uh, what, huh? Have you, have you read the book, maybe? Nope. I, I've been wanting to read those and watch the movies, and there's actually a comic book series that came out of 2001 uh, that, that then spun off a character that was... I mean, there was a Marvel comic book series. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that spun off into his own. One of the characters in that spun off, and he's kind of like part of the Marvel universe proper, hmm. called the Machine Man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Machine Man. So I've been wanting to watch the movie, read the books, and then start reading those comic books, but uh, oh. I can never find the time to do all those things. Oh, well. Too busy reading Star Trek books and comics. Exactly, books and- weekly. And producing this fine podcast that you're listening to now. Exactly. All right. That's enough whining about what I don't get to do. Exactly. All right. So uh, in this one, that planet uh, Messina was uh, a planet that surrounded uh, a binary star, orbited a binary star system. Yes. So in my mind, I like to think that this next story happens right after uh, the events in this story, which – is just me reaching, but uh, you'll see that this story deals with uh, binary star system quite a bit. So You mean the U.S. comic strip number nine? Yeah, the U.S. comic strip number nine, entitled The Savage Within. Ooh, do tell. Yeah, so uh, these started April 26, 1981, and lasted until July 21st, 1981. So the credits are writer Sharman Devono. And artist Ron Harris. So this is a a brand new writer that uh, is writing these comic strips, Star Trek comic strips, for the first time. All right, so here's the synopsis. So the Enterprise is charting Epsilon Anubis Sector, uh, which, as I said earlier, is a binary star system. When they find a derelict starship, uh, the ship has massive life 
uh, life form readings aboard, uh, but they are not answering any hails. Uh, it is also noted that there is a second craft uh, attached to the ship, uh, but it is definitely a different type of make. It's not a, a shuttlecraft of the, the main ship. So Spock calculates that one of the stars in the system is about to release massive waves of radiation that will destroy all life forms on that vessel within 37 hours. Uh, Kirk takes a landing party aboard the massive ship to see if they can repair the engines fast enough to uh, move the ship far enough so that it uh, will miss the radiation bombardment. Once aboard, the scans show that the ship has been in orbit for about 300 years and that the interior of the ship is quite revolting with uh, corpses and dirt absolutely everywhere. Um, and a, a crewman by the name of uh, I guess he's an engineer. So engineer Hadley goes off to check the engines by himself. Uh, once he leaves the rest of the crew, uh, they're they're all attacked by some barbarian-looking humans. Uh, during the attack, another crewman by the name of Yomiki is hit and presumed dead. Uh, once the battle is all said and done, McCoy, Spock, Kirk uh, are captured and stripped of their equipments by this clan of, of barbarians. Uh, and the clan is actually just one of several aboard the ship. So I guess we're supposed to assume that there's several of these uh, clans and they're always uh, fighting with one another. Um, come to find out, these barbarians are actually descendants of the original crew. Um, there was a great radiation surge, uh, probably about 300 years ago, that crippled the ship and killed a huge number of the, of the, the crewmen. And then for the last uh, 300 years, uh, future generations have started to become more and more uh, primal. So, and, and their dress kind of looks like ancient Egyptian, which, which is fitting since they're in the Anubis sector. All right, so the clan that has captured the crew uh, are led by a beautiful woman by the name of Korm Nall. And she thinks that Kirk might just be the wild card she needs to overthrow the Overclan, which is led by Captain Nagay, in apostrophe G-A. So I'm going to just call him... Naga? Naga. Nagu? Naga? Nagu? Naga. Okay. We're going to go with just Naga. Pick, just pick Naga. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. So um, she's kept him captured. She talks to her uh, friends or underlings about how she's going to be able to overthrow the captain. Uh, just then, there's an explosion, um, and Kirk saves Corn, Corm's life. And uh, as he's trying to explain the danger that the ship is in, there is a another attack by an army of Eloxki, which are giant insect creatures. So they look a lot like giant caterpillars. So these Eloxkis are attacking the humans. Um, as as soon as they show up, Spock it starts writhing in pain due to the telepathic transmissions that they're emitting. Uh, during the confusion of the fight, uh, Kirk regains his phaser and communicator from the uh, barbarians, uh, and the humans are able to fight the creatures off. And then once the creatures are gone, they find out that McCoy was taken along with them. Uh, Kirk uses the communicator to contact Scotty and Handley, uh, and the repairs on the, the derelict ship are completed. Uh, Kirk just needs to get to the, to the bridge in order to pilot the ship out of the uh, star's radiation uh, barrier, I guess. So he orders Scotty to take the Enterprise 
uh, out of harm's way, and he orders Handley to go and find Umkey's body and then head back to the Enterprise himself. Uh, as Handley finds the uh, Umkey's body, uh, you f he finds out that he's actually not dead. He's still alive. He's just injured. And then about that time, they're both captured by uh, Nagai's um, men. So, and they're taken up to the bridge. And the enraged Nagai fires the uh, lasers onto the Enterprise. So I guess he feels like they're uh, threatening him, so he just starts attacking the Enterprise. Uh, Kirk uses his phaser and blasts his way into the bridge uh, at the same time that the Alotsky, um creatures arrive to the bridge as well with McCoy in tow. Spock is able to mind meld with them, and we learn that they are actually... Um, Spacefaring creatures that stopped at the derelict many years ago to try to help the uh, the life forms uh, basically get the ship up and running so that it doesn't get killed by these radiations from the stars. Um, but they found out that when they try to tele telepathically communicate with the humans, that it actually kills them. Uh, so then the barbarians, fearing them, uh, start attacking them, and the uh, creatures have never been able to make it back to their uh, shuttle, which is still attached to the, the hull of the ship. Um, about this time, Coram Nall uh, goes ahead and attempts her mutiny, uh, but Kirk is able to talk her out of it. Uh, he allows the Alokiski to get back to their ship, and they, they leave. And then as he tries to fire up the engines, he's not able to build up enough speed to get the ship away. And, I mean, we're talking about in just minutes the radiation is going to kill everybody. So then the Enterprise and the Loski ship tow the huge derelict away from the danger. And we get a little scene where Korm Nal is very happy that Kirk talks too much. The end. So earlier she she was criticizing Kirk for talking too much and not being a man of action. So at the end she's she's happy that he does talk too much because – he was able to to get him get him free. Kirk, not a man of action. Oh my God, come on. <laughs> so, anyways, this one's not horrible either. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually I actually liked it. Um, I mean, I kind of I really like the idea of these people that are stranded for generations and generations and generations, and you know they stop caring about the ship as a being a ship and it's more of just the place where they've always grown up yep. and uh, you know reverting back to their more barbaric um, their more bar barbaric tendencies I don't know I, I don't see it could ever really happen but I do kind of like that idea I think it's kind of a cool idea uh, well, it's an idea that's happened multiple times in science fiction stories uh, like in Mi the episode Miri, uh, although it hadn't hadn't gone that far yet, but still, the the ch Miri and the children were kind of uh, oh, that's right. Little, you know, they they had reverted when all the adults died. Yeah, kind of like a, a little barbaric children band. of the corn type thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yep, a little bit, a little bit like um, uh, Savix. Little band. Oh yeah, they're of, uh, they're on... of engineered children. Right. Anyway. Yeah. It, coincidentally, uh, last night, <coughs> uh, I just was 
playing around on, on Netflix. There was a movie called Pandium that I had, I remember seeing commercials about. It was basically about a, a guy who wakes up from um, hypersleep and he doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's on some ship or something? Right. And, uh, you know, I, it was one of those things that I didn't really know a lot about, but I wanted to watch one of these days. So last night I just fired it up. And coincidentally enough, it has a lot of the say, uh, a lot of this type of idea going on that oh. that a ship could, you know, a few people that are stuck on a ship could start reverting back to their more basic tendencies uh, after a generation or two. So uh, oh. I thought, I, again, it was just a coincidence that that story that I watched last night just happened to kind of tie in with this this comic book that we were reading the same week. So I, I, I don't want to give away too much of that movie, but it's definitely worth a, a watch. Okay. Cool. So I didn't really understand why they kind of took the Egyptian look. I mean, even like – I mean, she was just wearing like a little skirt and some very Egyptian-looking jewelry that covers up her top, and that's pretty much all she wears throughout the story. Mm-hmm. But the, that necklace that she wears looks very Egyptian to me, which, which I kind of – have to wonder where she got it from. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think they just, you know, you just pick a theme. Um, I mean, these people didn't don't appear to have anything directly to do with Earth. No. Nope. At least that they ever said. No, they didn't. But I called them human because they look human. But they're they they're not human. Earth humans. They're they're some other planet humans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Another planet humans. Maybe they're from the planet Scarrow. Oh, Scarrow. Which, as you know, is, is a Doctor Who reference, but the aliens look just like humans. That's amazing. It's weird. It happens right? a lot in Doctor Who. It happens a lot in Star Trek. It happens a lot in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And how, the, and how can they all talk talk together again? Oh, Esperanto, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, in the gold key stuff, that was the... Um, Galactic standard language. Exactly. The interplanetary language that even people from different galaxies that you never saw before just happened to speak it. Eh, at least they tried to explain it. Yeah, well, they, I guess they didn't know what a universal translator was back when they were writing those books. However, Segway, um, recently on the internet, at least when we recorded this, there was uh, that somebody had posted on a site the original document that Roddenberry put together when he pitched uh, the Star Trek TV series back in 1964. I guess he pitched it, and uh, and and he put together this this document. And one of the things he's mentioning in there are different pieces of technology, including phasers and um, universal translators. Yeah, and that's actually a cool document because it actually says that. Uh... You know, to get away from from huge budgets of trying to re- recreate the alien of the week type thing, that they would do more, you know, parallel Earth type things where you know another society has evolved very similar to Earth. So you would mm-hmm. go somewhere and they would be ancient. People. They would be people, but it would kind of be like an ancient Egypt theme. Which right. this story was really screaming at me too. It's like, oh, they're taking the ancient Egypt theme. Um, and you know, which is cool because you see that a lot in Star Trek that they go somewhere and it just happens to look like ancient Greece or it happens to be the Wild West, which uh, you know was pretty cool. I mean, it gets the idea across that this is 
you can kind of get what they're trying to do without having to over explain everything. Right. But yeah, that was a good document. Thank you for sharing that with me. My pleasure. And anybody out there that has not heard of this document, I would definitely su suggest going and checking it out. Uh, if we keep on going, uh, I might be able to look up the uh, the name of it or something people could search on. Well, but, how about we just throw this out there? If you're listening to this and you would like the document, email us at startcomicbookreview <laughs> at gmail.com. Now, there you go. I will be happy to forward you Ken's uh, document. There you go. Uh, it's a PDF uh, uh, scanned in of the original document. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's history. It's it's history. And what's the other interesting thing? I, I thought the another interesting thing was that uh, that the main character Robert, was... Robert April. Exactly. Captain Robert April. Yep. Which we all saw in Star Trek the animated series and in Star Trek New Voyage or Early Voyages the comic book series. Exactly. So he's uh his original uh captain character survived on in in later um storylines. Right. Cool. Yeah, I always knew that Robert April was the original name and then they changed it to Pike right at the last mm -hmm. minute uh when they were doing the original pilot. So I always knew that that was that was one of the original names. Have, have you ever read why? I have not heard why. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea why. But I, I do know that in the original script, you know, I, I don't know for sure what I've read. Said that in the original script, he was referred to as Captain uh, April, and then right at the last minute, they changed it to Pike. Hmm. So for whatever good reason. Yeah, I don't know. So, anyways, okay, uh, back to this story. In regards to the people on the bridge, the the ruling class or whatever, I, mm -hmm. I did kind of like how they still knew kind of how to control the ship through, you know, generation of generation of songs and legends and things like that. But I right. didn't quite understand why they didn't just know how to read and couldn't just read the manual. And I mean, I never really got why people stopped learning. Yeah. And they just became these primitive people, but still kind of knew how to run the ship through song and things like that. Right. Well, yeah. Um, didn't they didn't they say at the time of the big kill off or whatever they called it that uh, they came into an encounter of of radiation and some of the people in the outer areas of the ship were killed off? Right. So maybe those were some of the more technical, knowledgeable people. I don't know. But at, at least if it's a descendant of the captain uh, that still lives today, you would think that, okay, so at least you got the captain that could pass down a few, uh, you know, tidbits of knowledge in something other than a ceremony, ceremonial type thing. Right. 300 years seems like a, a really long time, but yeah. I just can't imagine. Unless the ship was damaged so that people couldn't use the computer files and things like that. So maybe that's why they had to learn it through you know, legend and songs and things like that, but yeah. I don't know. They never actually said it because ships still seem to have lights and life support and things like that. Right. Well, definitely um, in our modern day, in our modern society, uh, it's like we take for granted everything's, you know, progress. It's like progress, of course. Things are getting better, technologically more advanced as time goes by. But uh, as we've seen in uh, in history, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. <laughs> uh, 
societies can um, uh, what, uh, fall backward. I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, but uh, de-evolve de- or whatever. Um, things don't have to continually get better or smarter or that kind of thing. I mean, we went through the dark ages and other kinds of big step backwards in uh, in history. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so maybe that's what happened here that that they just you know lost the command structure and everybody kind of went off and became, formed their own clans, and then yep. after generations and generations of it, they that's that's how it's always been, I guess. It it can go that way. So uh, something I I definitely noticed for those of you that are uh, Firefly fans, like uh, myself, and I think probably Donovan. Um, definitely this ship, this big multi-generational ship, um, the front of it looks like, uh, Serenity, uh, the ship Serenity, uh, kind of like a goose kind of, uh, head sticking up out of it, um, of course the back end of it totally looks nothing like it, it looks like, uh, three or more, like, like spheres all glued together, uh, kind of like a, kind of like a Christmas, uh, cheap little... (laughs) <laughs> Elmer's glue kind of arts and crafts thing in the back. The you know three three balls just kind of glued together. But the front of it uh, looks like kind of the extended like a goose uh, gooseneck kind of uh, front of the ship, just like Serenity. Right. I won't tell you what I think it looks like. <laughs> I, a little bit, but I mean, well, maybe a little bit. I mean, especially there on May. Third, the first Sunday or the second Sunday um, strip. Mm-hmm. I mean that top panel where the Enterprise is kind of floating in front of it. Uh, right. This looks a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you would say that. I say it looks like Serenity. You say something else, which you can probably figure out. Anyway. Especially if you see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well worth uh, looking this one up on the internet. Yeah. Since that's probably the only place people can get these strips, right? Yes, I don't know. Unless you go to your library and go to... Do they still even have oh, microfish and stuff? I bet they do. But, man, you'd have to really look around. Hell, yeah, you would. take you weeks to go to each day and pull out the, the two or three panels you got a, a day. Yeah. It's much easier well, to find somebody on the Internet that already did it for you. Exactly. Much better. That's why the Internet is so cool. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on this one? Um, uh, let me see. Oh, yeah. I thought it was kind of odd that uh, when the when uh, when the, the well, really primitive ship, uh, huge but primitive ship um, that they're all on is, is firing on the Enterprise, and then Scotty says he can't fire on the ship because he might hurt the landing party. It's like, come on. I mean, we. In Star Trek, they do pinpoint uh, accuracy phaser shots all the time to disable engines or, you know, whatever. Right. Come on. Yeah, I had I, this, I, just, I thought that was kind of weird. I had the same complaint, but I justified it by saying that maybe the ship was so... So fragile and old. Yeah, that was so yeah. Yeah. falling apart already that if, if he tried it, it would break apart. Or if he tried to fire on it, they definitely wouldn't allow the engines to fire up, and they wouldn't be able to move the ship in time to... Escape the radiation. Yeah, they needed to knock out the stupid laser turret in front. Come on. Right. But yeah. No, I get you, and I had the same complaint, but 
I justified it so that uh, I could continue on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let me see. Oh, I thought it was kind of funny that uh, when in Ga- when Captain and Ga finally figures out how to get the engines going, Kirk just knocks him out of the way and takes over the controls. I mean, I know he needed to get in there and and maneuver the ship out, but it's like he just knocks him out of the way, bitch slashes him, boom, out of my way. I'm driving. Yeah, he does. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny. Well, I mean, he didn't really know how to drive it. He just knew how to turn it on. Right, but it's like he is. Oh, whatever. No, I totally get you. I I just thought it was funny how Kirk just literally knocks the guy back. Get the hell out! Get the heck out of my way! Right, and I didn't really like the drawing of Naga. He looked very portly for being on a yeah. ship where I mean they don't have food readily available. I wouldn't think. Yeah, and he's kind of drawn as like a, a larger type man. He is, and also his eyes just don't. I mean, it, it, he actually looks kind of, sort of Chinese, maybe, but even even more extreme. Yeah, he, I don't know. He, he he looks different from the uh from the other more savage people. Yeah, he definitely does look, and and it's weird because his eyes never quite match up, so they're always like off off kilter. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird, and he has that weird top knot type ponytail type thing going. Yep. Well, they're aliens. Well, they don't have to use our hairstyles. Right. I did like how they drew the binary star system to... I mean, it's drawn very similar to how it was drawn in the the previous story, which (laughs) shows the two (laughs) stars kind of merging together in the middle a little bit. Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. I've never seen it drawn that way. I mean, the only other time I've seen binary star systems in comics is like, Star Wars when they go to Tatooine and things like that. Right, they're so far away from Yeah, they don't ever actually show like the plasma from one kind of bleeding into the into the other one, mm-hmm. which but in both of these stories that's how they did they depicted it. So it's kind Good of point. a cool visual, I thought. Cool. Yep. Uh especially the one with like the uh uh what's her name's face behind it? Yeah, Comnal. Comnal. There you go. Cormnow. Uh, Cormnow. Yeah, I, that's right. Cormnow. There's an R in there. So overall, did you uh, did you like the artwork? I mean, because it's a different. The, the 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 ships in general were pretty good. Uh, although I will say that the insects ship looks very. It, I don't know. It just looks very. Eh, eh, eh. I mean, it basically looks like a flat, kind of sort of triangle, with a. Uh, you know, like a tennis ball on front of it, like a sphere in the front, and then kind of a uh, like a long triangle behind it, kind of shape. Yeah, I thought it was kind of eh. Nothing. I mean, it's different. I mean, it's nothing like the Enterprise, and it's nothing like the Serenity type uh, multi generational ship. So, I mean, from that standpoint, good. They're all very different styles of ships, but it just looks kind of dumb. Yeah, I agree with you. But overall, I. The, it's kind of weird that the Sunday papers, the Sunday comics, which are in color, mm-hmm. to me look worse than the black and white ones. Uh, That's usually the other way around. Yeah, know. all the other ones, the the color ones looked really good. The black and white yeah. ones look good too, but yeah, it was just like the color ones looked better because it was in color. But in these, the color ones look worse. 
and even the artwork looks worse than than normal. It's like I don't I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because the colors kind of all kind of bleed into each other. I don't know. Yeah, the colors are are bad, but that's maybe what just what newspapers were like back then. Sure, but I mean, but we've read a lot of a lot of them in previous stories, and I didn't notice this. Yeah. So. Yeah, and there's and there's plenty of scenes where Kirk looks yellow. Colors are not good. Well, yeah, all the humans kind of look yellowish orange. Yeah. Hmm. And then sometimes it's like their faces are colored, but their clothes are still not. I don't know. And again, it could just be the coloring that happened to be in that newspaper that this this guy was able to scan in. I don't know. Right. But I don't know. Definitely a different art style than um, than Wardkinton. Not, and not I, I think I think especially after those last Workington uh, strips, we were about ready for something different. Yeah. Anything else on this one? Not a thing. Those are the only two we're going to do today. Okay. Um, in the Elsewheres in Star Trek, the comic book came out in December of 1980 and was the only only Star Trek publication that came out that month. Oh. Okay. So that's it. So I guess next week we are doing. Marvel number 10 and comic strip number 10 and 11. Okay. Should be good. That sounds good. We're looking forward to it. So anyway, future future listeners out there, thanks for joining us and see you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. With Donovan again. Exactly. Later. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.